You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you. Uh, If we've not met before, which I've met every single person in this room. So uh, if you're watching us on the live stream, if we've not met before, uh, my name is Matt Luloy and I serve as one of the pastors here of Liberty Church. Uh, and for whatever reason, you, you click the link today to tune into our live stream. Uh, grateful to have you with us. Church family, uh, we continue to love you and miss you and really eager and excited for continuing uh, the regathering process. Uh, so stay tuned for, for updates about that in these coming weeks too as the, uh, the updates across our state continue to change as well. Uh, We have um, been going through a series these last several weeks called The Mission of God's People, and we're going to continue on that this morning. Uh, If you have Bibles, you can turn them to the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. You can uh, follow along in the living room liturgy. It's it's written out there for you as well. Uh, In these weeks where we have, again, uh, observed brokenness and injustice, particularly across racial lines in our nation, uh, and in the light of all of the hurt and the pain and the anger and the confusion that that has brought, it seemed important to change our plans uh, a little bit this week to focus on another aspect of our mission as God's people. Uh, if you've been with us, remember the key question of this series is as God's people, as followers of Jesus Christ, what are we called to do? Who are we called to be in the world? And there's a passage in this Old Testament minor prophet book of Micah, which gives us an answer to that question. We are to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Uh, I hope that you will see this morning through our time, I hope you will see uh, that this is not a social gospel. These are the social implications of the gospel, of the good news of God's salvation. It's not saying this morning, and I hope you don't hear anything like this, it's not saying, here's how you and I together save the world. It's saying, as God saves sinners, like me and like you and like others, as God saves sinners, he requires them to respond by pursuing things like justice and mercy and humility. Now, I am uh, by no means an expert on this, especially when it comes to the implications for justice, mercy, and humility on race and racial reconciliation. Uh, I'm really grateful for other men and women, uh, other faithful pastors and leaders who are much further down the road uh, than I am. And I was grateful uh, to gather with a few of them and many other men and women and children yesterday on the Capitol steps to pray for these exact things, to pray for justice and to pray for mercy and to pray for humility. If we are going to faithfully respond to God's saving work in our lives, if we are going to be his faithful people and pursue the mission that he has given us, we must put to death our ignorance and our fear and our silence and with greater fidelity live out the identity that Jesus has purchased for us with his own blood. So by the grace of God, may that begin today. Let me pray for us as we jump in. Lord God, let us now hear what you will speak, for you speak peace to your people. Your salvation is near to those who fear you, that your glory may dwell in our land. O God, who in Christ has made steadfast love and faithfulness meet, 
who has made righteousness and peace kiss each other. We ask that now by your spirit, your righteousness would go before us and make a way for us to walk in. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Verse 6. The people respond to God's indictment. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And Micah, speaking on God's behalf, responds, He has told you, O man, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is God's word. Micah was a prophet who ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah in the 8th century B.C., Uh, And like most of the prophets, he writes about both God's judgment and God's great forgiveness, God's great mercy. Some parts of his book, including this text, take the form of what we might call a covenant lawsuit. A covenant lawsuit. Like a legal proceeding, God brings a case against his people and then invites them to respond to the charges that he has levied upon them. And so we'll break this down into three parts as we continue our time this morning. First, we'll look at God's indictment. Then we'll look at the wrong response. And then lastly, we'll look at the right response. God's indictment, the wrong response, and the right response. So first, God's indictment. God's people are upset. They're upset. They're complaining that God is placing judgment upon them unfairly. And as they accuse God of doing them wrong... God instead says, no, 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 hang on a second. It's you, my people, who have been unfaithful. It's you who's wrong. He calls, as we read in those first couple verses, he calls creation to testify against his people as a witness. He invites his people then to answer, to defend themselves. But the main indictment from God is this. It's that in spite of his faithfulness, in spite of his deliverance, in spite of his favor upon them, they have responded unfaithfully. They have not walked in God's way, in the way that he has shown them. They have not lived a life consistent with their identity as his people. The covenantal language in this passage is thick, and it's important for us to hear that as we read these words. When God says in verse 3 and again in verse 5, Oh, my people, oh, my people, and when, he, when the passage is bookended in verse 8 with the words, Your God. 
It means that this whole indictment and this whole response is given in the context of relationship, in the context of identity. So God is not here indicting the world at large. He's indicting his own people. There there are other texts, there are other parts of Scripture where God condemns the sins of the world, the idolatry and the wickedness of people who want nothing to do with him. But in this text, and actually in most of the minor prophets, and even the major prophets, the indictments and the rebukes are most often levied against God's own people. We are called to live in light of who we are. We are called to live in light of who we are. Action always flows out of identity for the people of God. As Christians, we, we don't live a certain way to make ourselves into something new and to make, and to make ourselves into something better. We live a particular way because of who we already are, who God has made us, who God has redeemed us to be. The call of the Christian life is always become who you already are. Become who you already are. So there's a particular horror when God's people are inconsistent and faithless. Because God has made a covenant with his people, because he's saved them and blessed them, to take that gift and to trample it, to trample on it with an unfaithful response is a heinous offense against God. It's worthy of an indictment like this. It's why Jesus is so hard on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Have you ever read the gospel accounts and wondered about that? Jesus is kind and compassionate to basically everybody except the Jewish leaders. And with the Jewish leaders, he lights them up. He actually provokes them to anger. He pronounces woes upon them. This is why. This is why. They of all people should know better. Whatever wickedness is playing out in the world around them, in the world around us at large, the people of God know the one true God. They're in relationship with the one true God and have been given everything in him. Speaking for God, then, Micah recounts some of the highlights. What has God done for his people? He's delivered them from slavery in Egypt. The Exodus is the defining redemptive event of the Old Testament, constantly looked back upon as evidence of God's character and his power and his faithfulness to his people. God's provided human leaders for his people to follow, Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He's protected them from Moab's curse. Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse Israel. But instead of a curse, Balaam could only pronounce a blessing over the people of God. In other words, even when curses are devised against them, God's blessing on his people prevails over the curse. And then crossing the Jordan into the promised land. Here's a Here's a pro-pastor tip for you this morning. Uh, If you stub your toe or burn yourself or something like that, you can quickly turn an expletive into a very good teaching moment with your children. Uh, Daddy, what's that word? You can say, oh, sorry, sweetie. Um, Daddy was just remembering the last place in the wilderness that Israel camped before they crossed the Jordan. It was called Shittim. And then they crossed over into the town called Gilgal in the Promised Land. If you ever find yourself in that situation, I may have before in my life, use it as a teaching moment. It's great. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground and they entered into the promise God made. God did that for them too. And this recounting of all of God's faithfulness is part of his indictment. Look at what's been given to you, he's saying. Look at what's been given to you, my people. Look at the salvation and the provision that I have worked for you. How could you respond with unfaithfulness? 
And church, how much more is this true for you and I? In our rearview mirror, we not only have these examples of God's faithfulness, we have the ultimate example of that, of that faithfulness. We have been ransomed and rescued by God at the infinite cost of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, he has made a new covenant with us. He has written his law on our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And yet, like Israel, we are prone over and over again to be unfaithful, to live inconsistently and out of line with the great salvation that God has worked on our behalf. Now, we could explore any number of ways that this unfaithfulness, this inconsistency plays out. But let us acknowledge today, again, our failure as God's people to combat the sins of racism, of racial injustice that still exist in our world. There are no gradations in the image of God. Martin Luther King Jr. Jesus' command to love our neighbor has no contingencies. No contingencies. If you find yourself in this moment quick to defend and to exonerate yourself, remember that sin is not only our commissions, but our omissions. It's certainly a sin to treat an image bearer of God as less than that. But it's also a sin to remain silent when that's happening to other people and continuously happening. To not speak up on behalf of others. To avoid doing the good that we ought to do. So God have mercy on us, not only for our commissions, but God have mercy on us for our omissions. If one of the prophets were speaking to us today, part of God's indictment against his people would be our blindness, our avoidance, and our silence. Second, second, after God's indictment, let's consider the wrong response. The wrong response. In verse 6, the people respond. And before I unpack the the specifics there, let's make sure that we don't miss this. God's indictment has an effect. It has an effect. The people are moved and convicted, and they want to respond. So what about us? What about you and me? Can we at least say that this morning? Are we at least moved enough, convicted enough, that something is seriously wrong when it comes to racial relationships in our nation? Even though their response is off, At least the Israelites in Micah 6 recognize the holiness of God, God on high, as they refer to him here. At least they recognize the horror that they have taken his great gifts, his deliverance, his salvation, and have responded unfaithfully to that. A wrong response, an imperfect response, is better than no response at all. Because at least it takes God's indictment to heart. At least it takes God's indictment seriously. It's at least movement onto the road of faithfulness, onto the road where God will continue to meet you and correct you and urge you onward. In verses 6 and 7, how do the people respond? They're inclined and they suggest sacrifices, which in so many ways makes sense. God prescribed throughout the Old Testament various kinds of sacrifices to atone for the sins of his people. But there's a huge difference between empty ritual and sincere obedience from the heart. God's people, we find out here, they want a quick course correction, not real faithfulness. Not a long obedience in the same direction, to borrow the book title from Eugene Peterson years ago. 
They're suggesting sacrifices as this token kind of payment to make things right with God. But what payment is sufficient for that? They start to suggest things and it escalates really quickly. What payment is sufficient? How about a burnt offering? Now remember, that's the, that's the whole animal, God, not just the part that like, I keep back for myself to eat and burn the other part. A whole burnt offering. Maybe that's enough. Or how about some year-old calves regarded as the best and more expensive because you have to raise the cow for a whole year first before you sacrifice and offer it. Then they shift from quality to quantity. Maybe those things aren't enough. Maybe we need more of something. How about whole flocks of rams? How many thousands of rams will it take? How about thousands of rivers, tens of thousands of rivers of oil? How many uncountable gallons of oil will it take? And then it reaches what one scholar calls its ghastly crescendo. What about my own firstborn? What if, like the pagan nations around us, I were to kill my own child? Would that be enough? Would that be enough to make me right with God? You see how fast that escalated? If you really begin to perceive the holiness of God and the offense of our unfaithfulness, if that moves you to respond, and if that response is in any way an effort to earn or buy your way back into God's good graces, you will find that in your zeal, you can immediately become unfaithful in a whole new and different way, in a horrible way. God wants nothing to do with child sacrifices. He explicitly prohibited that for his people. That was the detestable, wicked practice of worshipers of Molech and other idols in the ancient Near East. Not for Israel. But here's Israel working themselves up into a frenzy and suggesting exactly that. Now, what does this have to do with responding to racial injustice? As we rightly desire to respond to God's indictment, we can't trade one form of unfaithfulness for another. So can we make this crystal clear this morning? You cannot lament enough, pray enough, march enough, protest enough, read enough, learn enough, or act enough to make yourself right with God. To make yourself right with others. You can't. We can't. We cannot social justice our way into the kingdom of God. This passage is as much a condemnation of trying to earn forgiveness as it is a commendation of pursuing justice and mercy and humility. There is one way to experience reconciliation between God and humanity. There is one way to experience reconciliation between the divided parts of humanity, and that is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. If our efforts of justice and mercy and racial reconciliation are our hope for our lives, for this world, if that's the extent of our plan, we should just quit now. We will never transform ourselves into just people. We will only focus our injustice and focus our hatred or omit showing love to someone else. Which is why we are seeing some people right now, in the name of restoring dignity to people of color, absolutely tearing down and hating and obliterating other people made in the image of God because they aren't getting with the program fast enough, because they aren't woke enough. That's the whole insane progression of sacrifices in verses 6 and 7. If your hope is in your own efforts, they will never be enough, and you'll quickly find yourself being unfaithful and unjust in another direction. If you're someone who is already speaking up 
who is already learning and praying and acting toward racial reconciliation, praise God. Praise God. Keep going. Don't stop. Just hear what I'm saying here. In our desire for justice, we can't inadvertently, we, we can, I should say, we can inadvertently and alarmingly quickly lose the gospel and begin to proclaim something which is no gospel at all. As followers of Jesus, let us never settle for people just acting the right way or saying the right things. We want people to enter the kingdom of God. We want God to save sinners like me and like you. We want people to look to Jesus and be reconciled to God so that we would actually experience what Christ has already accomplished, Ephesians 2, the dividing walls of hostility being broken down and the hostility between people put to death. And then, because of our identity, because we have experienced what only Christ can do, we devote ourselves fully from the heart to the right response. So third, let's talk about the right response response. When we talk about issues of justice and mercy, we do that every year in January and then periodically throughout the year. When we talk about racial injustice in particular, if you find yourself deep in your soul thinking, I wish the church would just preach the gospel. I wish the church of Jesus would just preach the gospel. I hope you just heard it. I hope you just heard it. Salvation belongs to God. You cannot save yourself. But if that's you, if that's the the spirit and the hardness and even the cynicism that you might find in your heart, then I beg you this morning to take your fingers out of your ears and to hear the rest of what this passage says. Otherwise, your heart is hard and whatever you mean when you say preach the gospel is as empty as any ritual ever was. After this horrible crescendo to child sacrifice. Micah's reply is clear, it's direct, and it's in no way novel. He has already shown you, he has shown you, he has told you, O man, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, could be either of those words, and walk humbly with your God. He's saying here, in other words, you are God's covenant people. You already know what God wants. He established that with you at Mount Sinai. He wants a faithful response from the heart in light of the great salvation he's worked on your behalf. Specifically here, three forms of love. Justice, mercy, humility. For a God who has rescued and saved and blessed his people, this is the consistent obedient response. Jesus calls us to the very same things in Matthew 23, by the way. In case you're concerned that this is only an issue for Old Testament Israel and that that somehow changed with the coming of Christ, he calls us to the same things in Matthew 23, referring to them as the weightier matters of the law. The weightier matters. He rebukes the religious leaders in that passage for focusing on the minutia while missing the massive point of actually showing love to other people. We are to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. The first two of those are about our relationship with other people, and the last one is about our relationship with God himself. Justice, justice as one commentator put it, is the key word used so often by the prophets to sum up our social obligation. It prohibits oppression, perjury, and bribery. 
It calls for a sense of responsibility toward more vulnerable members of society. It insists on the rights of others. It demands an instinct for social preservation. It demands an instinct for social preservation. So when it comes to issues of race, we should labor for justice. People of color are vulnerable in our society. They have been vulnerable in our society since our society was a society. God's people of all colors, therefore, have an obligation and a responsibility to insist upon the full humanity and the full dignity and the rights of all people made in the image of God. Mercy or kindness. That's also about our relationship with other people. And whereas justice refers to giving people what they are due as image bearers of God, rights and protections and dignity, mercy goes beyond the minimum. Beyond the minimum of what someone is owed, it is a costly love beyond obligation. A costly love beyond obligation. And that kind of love is developed through relationships through conversations, through learning. As we're convicted by the word of God, as we see what love looks like in scripture, we then engage with people who are different from us. Things that establish and build empathy and build um, understanding for what it's like to suffer in a way that maybe you have never had to suffer in your life. It's one thing for us to insist upon equity, and we should. We must also love mercy and go beyond the obligations so that In moments like these, we might actually weep with those who weep. And so that in moments like these, like the prophet Isaiah, we might sustain with a word the one who is weary. People of color, generation after generation in this nation, have been subjected to such devaluing and degrading of their image of God and their dignity in them, they are weary. They are weary. Will we love beyond obligation to sustain with a word the ones who are weary right now? And then walk humbly. Walk humbly. Which is about our relationship with God. Even as Micah says, walk humbly with your God. It's a constant desire to be led by him, to do his will. And it's a humble walk because we will need to repent all the time. All the time. We will need to hear God's indictments again. As much as I hope things change and move in this cultural moment, we will need to hear God's indictment again. We will pursue the wrong response again. We will need to repent of our sin and believe the gospel again and again and again and again. As it pertains to issues of race and racial injustice, what do you need to repent of? What do you need to repent of? And let's clarify this. You do not, if you're white, if you're Caucasian, you do not need to repent for the color of your skin. You do not need to repent for the the privileges or opportunities that you've been given in life or live in this perpetual state of guilt about that. But wherever you harbor hatred or bias or prejudice or racism in your heart, wherever you express that, repent of it. And wherever you've been ignorant or blind or silent, your omissions, repent of them. And while you're at it, while you're at it, if you're a Caucasian whose ancestors have lived in this country for any period of time, you can repent of the sins of your forefathers. That's a biblical concept. Throughout Old Testament scripture, 
couple refrains where the people say, we and our fathers have sinned. They own the sins that they themselves maybe personally did not commit, but their forefathers did. And there's this crazy inconsistency that's been playing out in our culture in recent weeks where because of coronavirus, people who are fearful of government overreach will boast in their heritage. Hey, in America, we stand up to government overreach. We stand up to tyranny and oppression. And we do. That's great. You know what else we've done in America? You know what else we've done in America? We have devalued and degraded the image of God, the full humanity in people of color. And so if you are inclined to boast of the one, be as inclined to repent of the other. If you want to own this part of your heritage, great. Own this part of your heritage too. If the gospel is true, why not repent of everything that you can possibly repent of? You see, if salvation, like the Israelites, start to respond wrongly, if salvation comes by our efforts, by us being good enough, perfect enough, I get the impulse to be defensive and to shrink down the things that you and I need to repent of. But if the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, then let us search out the fullest extent of our sins that we might throw ourselves upon the mercy of Jesus and experience his forgiveness and continue to walk humbly with our God until the day he comes again. Liberty Church, people of God in this time and place, you cannot repay God for his salvation. You must respond to it. You cannot do enough to make it right, you must do what's right because he has done enough, because he has done it all. Those of you, those of us who are already inclined to speak and act for justice and mercy, let us ensure that what we proclaim is truly good news for the world. Not another form of unfaithfulness, not a futile and misguided form of self-salvation, It makes complete sense why people who don't follow Jesus would come up with all other sorts of ways forward. As Jesus' followers, tell the truth. Point people to the actual source, the only source of salvation and reconciliation, which is Jesus Christ. If you're not inclined to speak and act for justice and mercy, then today, may the Holy Spirit place upon your heart the indictment of God so that you would be inclined. This is not a social gospel. These are the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are, this is an obedient response. This is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So may we hear the indictment of God. May God rescue us from our zealous but misguided responses. May he then lead us to a faithful response from the heart to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Amen. Let me pray for us. God of all nations, we praise you that in Christ, the barriers that have separated humanity are torn down. We confess our slowness to open our hearts and minds to people who are different from us. Deliver us from our sins of fear and prejudice. Help us to respond to Jesus' great salvation with lives that pursue justice and love mercy and walk humbly, that we may move toward the day and long for the day when we are fully one in Jesus Christ. Let me pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. 
To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.